Well, we are deeply blessed today, David and, and BJ. BJ's filling in on the board. Thank goodness for that. Uh, he knows all's going over there. They both blessed us so much. And as a church, we know that we always need young men and young women to carry on the ministry of the church because we're all, you know, every day we're getting just a little bit older. And thank God for, for David and for BJ and the other leaders here at the church doing so much for us. And we just thank God for David. He hadn't preached for us for a little while, and we're just looking forward to hearing him this morning. So let's give him a big round of applause as he comes. You know, you talk about uh, Rachel seeing you in Metcalf County. You know, it's not often people see me in Metcalf County, but our pastor's a stalker. I, uh, I'm driving with my dog to the vet down in Edmonton, and I get a text message. You be careful driving around in, in Metcalf County. Stalker. It's creepy. And I, uh, I just want to, I, I just want to have to say say this before I get started this morning. I, I doubt anyone here is a WKU football fan. Uh, WKU obviously is the closest large school to us, so that would technically be our hometown. Well, my school, Liberty University, played uh, WKU in Bowling Green yesterday, and we beat the tar out of them. So, <laughs> go Flames! <laughs> Uh, Brother Paul, he's been after me uh, ever since we started back in-person services to uh, choose a week to get back in the in the pulpit, and I've been putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, and finally, I guess it's about a month ago, Brother Paul, he said, "Will you pick a week to preach?" <laughs> and I said, I, "I tell you what, you you pick a week to preach for me to preach, and and I'll, I'll do it that week." And he said, "How about September twentieth to end the revival week?" And so here here we are. And man, what a great week we had. What a great week we had. If you had a great week, come on, let's hear an amen for what God did this week. I was, I was really blessed by the messages we heard last week, particularly uh, the last two nights, talking about the trials that we face and what the church is, is going through in our country from Brother Jacob. But how much more exciting is, and we've talked about this a lot today, but how much more exciting is it that we have two more members of the family of God this week? You know, um, I, I mean, come on. If you're not fired up about what happened this week, you need a soul checkup. You need a soul checkup. Something's, something's wrong if you're not fired up. Uh, Courtney and I, we, we don't know Rachel very well. All I really know about Rachel is that uh, she wants us to do a song in church by a group called Skillet. I know that's a weird name for a group, but I, I promise you they've, they've, they're a Christian group, I promise. Uh, and they, they've got some really good music. So we don't, we don't know Rachel very well, but... Uh, me and Courtney do know little Kinley very well. And I tell you what, when I got the text message late Wednesday night, I'd already gone home when it happened. I got the text message late uh, Wednesday from Nick, and I tell you, uh, me and Courtney could not have been more excited for that. And uh, it's, just, it's just really encouraging. I told Nick later that night that it is obvious to me that God is on the move here at Bethlehem Church. Amen. God is on the move here. In church, we need to be confident in that, and we need to take encouragement in that, that God is on the move. I mean, I almost feel like I don't even need to preach this morning. Let's just talk about what God did this last week. And I only, I only say that half kidding. We should be continually giving thanks for what God is doing. You know, I've been uh, working on the sermon for today for a few weeks, but after everything that happened this week, I, I told Nick, I said, I'm just going to scrap my sermon. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something different. I, I think um, God has something different for me to say because I, I don't believe that just because the revival week is over, that that means God is done at Bethlehem Church for 2020. Amen. God is not done working here. I believe he's just warming up. 
I believe he's just warming up. I don't know exactly what he has planned for our church or for the people in this church, but I know it's going to be something great. And he's telling us that it is time for harvest. It's time for harvest. Would you turn your Bibles with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 35. It will also be on the screen. If you will, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew, chapter 9, starting in verse 35, it says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for everything that you have given to us, for everything that you've done. We thank you for Rachel and Kinley getting saved and for everything else that happened during revival this week. And we thank you, Lord, that you're not done. God, we just pray as, as I speak this morning that you will speak through me and that I'll just get out of the way, Lord. And uh, let your spirit move this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Matthew 9.37, He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know, if there's something that uh, people here in Monroe County understand, it's, it's a harvest. We are in farming country. People know what harvest is. People understand the work that goes into harvest, and harvest time is here. But today we're not talking about harvesting crops. We're not talking about working in fields. We're talking about something much more precious. We're talking about harvesting souls for the kingdom of God. And here Jesus, he's using the idea of a harvest because that's what's going to make sense to his disciples. They were in a farming country just like we are. That's, that's what they did. That was their culture. Israel was an agricultural country. They were farmers. They were shepherds. That's what they did. In fact, their whole calendar was planned around planting, cultivating, growing, and harvesting. In fact, there's a chart on the screen. I know it's probably hard to see, but uh, it's got all the months of the year starting from September to September. And at the bottom, from March to September, they were harvesting one crop or another. And for those keeping score, that's seven months. What's so over half a year, they were harvesting something in the fields. So this is a subject they would be intimately familiar with. They were so in tune with the life of farmers and shepherds that Jesus actually used the illustration of things related to agriculture over 200 times in the Gospels. That's how he spoke to them. He was constantly using pictures of seeds, planting, growing, fields, harvesting, reaping, shepherding, sheep, goats, and more. Because Jesus spoke to them on their level using illustrations and terms that they could understand. And in this passage today, we see Jesus meeting the people, not just the disciples, but the people on their level. Let's look again at verses 35 and 36. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We're going to talk about three things in this passage this morning. And the first thing that we are going to discuss here in these verses is the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. Jesus, he went throughout all the cities and villages of, of the region called Galilee. It was here in this region of Galilee that his hometown of Nazareth was. Um, and you can see here a, a wheat field uh, in Galilee. That's what it looks like. And then we also see pictures of the hillsides. Uh, that's a beautiful country. 
this beautiful country in Galilee, and that's what it would have looked like then as well. And this could very well have been the area he was preaching. And he was also teaching in the synagogues. Now, this would have been a, uh, this is the remains of a synagogue from the first century where Jesus uh, would have preached in one of the towns. And now they didn't just let anyone teach in the synagogues. They, they took their religion, they took their teaching seriously. You had, to, you had to have some authority. You had to know what you were talking about. And they recognized his ability and his authority, and they let him teach. And what does verse 35 say that he was doing? It says that he was proclaiming the gospel. He was preaching the gospel, the salvation message. And gospel, it's just a, it's just a word that means good news. He was giving them good news. You know what he was telling them? He was telling them, guess what? You're sinners. And because you're sinners, you're condemned. Your destination is hell. But I've got good news for you. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. A Savior has been sent to you. Now, for most of His ministry, Jesus did not reveal Himself as the Messiah. He was going to let the story unfold and play out. But what He didn't make a secret about, He did not make a secret about what it took to have that salvation. He, he let them know that simply being a rule follower or claiming to be a rule follower, that's not enough. There's things you've got to do. There's the, the ways you've got to give your life and follow God. And he preached with authority because Jesus was and is and always will be God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, well, sorry, the word was with God, and the Word was God. He has the authority of God because He is God. <coughs> Jesus was not just a good man. man. How many times do we hear people who aren't Christians say, that? Oh, yeah, we believe Jesus existed, but He was just a good man. Or He was a good teacher. Or He was an exciting preacher. Now, we had a couple of exciting preachers this past week. Uh, but could you imagine sitting under the preaching of Jesus Himself? I mean, I don't, I don't think Brother Glenn and... Brother uh, Jacob could hold a candle to that. I, I, Jesus, He is the God of the universe who created you, who created me, and that God, the only God, He loves you and He loves me enough that He suffered and was tortured and died on the cross to save us from our sin. And Jesus continues to show His authority at the end of verse 35 when it says He was healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus... He has power over everything. We see this repeatedly in the Gospels. It shows His power over creation. It shows His power over uh, weather. It shows His power over sickness. It shows His power and authority over demons. It shows His power and authority over death. Because He conquered it. There is nothing that is not under His authority and under His rule. We actually see Jesus proclaim this authority later in Matthew's Gospel as well. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It says all authority. Not, not some authority, not just heaven's authority, or not just earth's authority. All authority. There is nothing that is not under His rule. So Jesus, He is teaching and preaching throughout Galilee with absolute authority, the authority of Jesus. And second, what we're going to look at today, we see the affection of Jesus. The affection of Jesus. In verse 36, it says this, When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for them. You know, the word compassion, it means to have a great love for them, to have affection for them. To me, it means to be deeply moved by their situation, to be deeply moved for them and toward them. Think about this for a minute. These are people that have sinned. It is is because of these people he has come to be tortured. It is because of these people he will suffer. It is because of these people he will be beaten to the point where he's not even recognizable as a human. And to these people he will die for. And he has a great compassion for them because they are harassed and helpless. What a Savior. What a God that we serve. What a God we have. You know, Jesus, he, he's talking to these people, and they were the lowest of the low in Roman culture. The Romans definitely did not care about the Jews. The Jews were, were worthless to them. But you know what? Jesus does not care about your status in society. Right. He doesn't care about the clothes you wear. He doesn't care about the car you drive, the job you have. His affection and love is great for us because that's the God He is. Now, this, this word harassed, it's a little confusing today because of the way we use it in our society. Uh, they were an oppressed people in the first century. Uh, uh, don't mistake that. But what's happening here is that they are distressed, they are weary, they are worn down, they are tired, and they are helpless. You see, the Jews, they lived under two types of oppression. Two types of oppression. First, they lived under the oppression of, of the Romans, who had invaded their lands, conquered their country, and now ruled over them and treated them like dirt. They didn't didn't care about the Jews. But they were also under the oppression of the Jewish spiritual leaders. And I use those terms spiritual and leaders very lightly. Those those leaders, they didn't care about the people. They They didn't care about the people. They definitely did not care about their souls. All the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin cared about was power. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be in charge. They liked their status, so they imposed all of these rules on the Jews that the Jews could not possibly follow. It was impossible. And as the Jews would mess up time and time again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would tear the Jews down, wear them down, and put even more rules and regulations on them. That's not leadership, and that's definitely not spiritual. And Jesus saw this. And I'm sure Jesus was pretty angry about it. But he saw the people and he had compassion on them. Because what we know about Jesus is he says that he is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He's not going to let them wander without him. But this is something that God had had in mind for the Jews for centuries. Going back to the Old Testament, look in Numbers chapter 27, verse 17. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 16. It says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord, and this sounds familiar, may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. God always wants the best for his people. You know, sheep, they're pretty dumb animals. (laughs) They, uh, without a shepherd, sheep are in trouble. They, they need to be guided. So Jesus, he's, he's hurting for the Jews. He sees that this is God's chosen people, his chosen people. And they're without leadership because of the corrupt leaders 
There's no spiritual guidance. Church, it should give us great comfort this morning to know that God does not want us to go unguided. That He does not want us to be as sheep without a shepherd. You know, we can be pretty dumb too. Amen. We can be pretty dumb too, but He is there to lead us. All we have to do is follow. He sent the Holy Spirit to guide us. He is our great shepherd. And John's Gospel actually makes this quite clear in chapter 10, starting in verse 7. John 10, 7 says, So Jesus said unto them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. A shepherd does everything that he can to protect his sheep. Without, without sheep, a shepherd here on earth in first century Israel had nothing. If you didn't have your sheep, if something happened to your sheep, I mean, you were done for. You couldn't buy food. You couldn't keep your house because you didn't have a house because guess what? You slept in the fields. You had nothing. You could not sustain yourself. So the shepherds in the first century, they would do anything for their sheep, even if it meant putting themselves in mortal danger. And it's with that same mindset that Jesus protects his sheep. The affection of Jesus for those who he came to save is great. And it should give us great comfort and joy to know that there is no end to his love for us. There's no limits on it. It's unmeasurable. The third thing we see in this passage this morning, what I want us to spend the rest of our time on, is the assignment that Jesus now gives to his disciples. The assignment from Jesus, let's look in verses 37 through 38 of Matthew chapter 9. It says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful. Think think about this for a minute. In 2018, there were seven and a half billion people on this earth. That is a lot of people. That is a lot of people. And if only one percent of that seven and a half billion people were part of the harvest, guess what? That's 80 million people. And I tell you, I can't imagine that only 1% of the earth's current population will be part of the kingdom of God. The harvest is out there. I mean, think about it this way. In just this church alone, in the past year, we have had three people saved. And we average, what, about 30 people on a Sunday morning? That's 10% of our church saved in the last year. Amen? I mean, let's be honest. We don't exactly have a big church. We're a small country church. But three people. If our harvest within our own church is that plentiful, think about how plentiful the harvest is outside these four walls. But Jesus says there's a problem. We have a problem. He says, yes, the harvest is plentiful. There are plenty of souls that are out there primed and ready to hear the gospel. They may be itching just to hear the gospel and not even realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what they're craving for, what they're seeking, what they want. They may not even realize that. But that's what they want. 
problem is the laborers are few. Church, Jesus is calling on his disciples to do something. He tells them in verse 38 to pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest. Not, not, just, not just pray. Pray earnestly to plead with God, to beg him. Ask him with the highest urgency, God, send people out into the fields. We need laborers in the fields to bring in that harvest. But I want you to notice something very interesting in Matthew chapter 10. Just a few short verses after where we're focused on this morning. Matthew 10, 1, it says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And skipping down to verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town among the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So in chapter 9, Jesus is telling his disciples to pray for the laborers, that God would send someone into the fields, and then he turns right around in chapter 10 and says, guess what? I'm sending you. You are the laborers. You see, Jesus, he has a mission for all of his disciples, and if we're a Christian, that's exactly what we're called to be, a disciple of Jesus Christ. He has a mission and assignment for us. This isn't, this isn't mission impossible. This is not, this is your mission if you should choose to accept it. No, this is your assignment for your life. He spells it out for us in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go! That's what Jesus says. He says, go! Make more disciples. You twelve aren't enough. And teach the disciples that you make to, teach everything, to observe everything that I've taught you. In other words, church, it's not enough to come to church once a week. We're not just called to come to church, sing a few songs no matter how good they may be, listen to a 30-minute sermon, say a prayer, go home, act like nothing ever happened, say a prayer before each meal, say another prayer before we go to bed, maybe say a prayer when we get up, maybe open our Bible once or twice a week, and act like that we're following Christ and everything's okay. But unfortunately, I believe that's what a lot of Christians do here in the United States. And often I find myself guilty of that as well. We don't make Christianity our lifestyle. It's a label that we wear because it's convenient. Well, church, I'm here to tell you this morning that it's not going to be convenient forever. Brother Glenn and Brother Jacob, they both talked about that this past week, that we're headed for some trials in this country for Christ's church, and we need to be ready to meet the challenge, to fulfill the assignment that Christ has given us here in the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to what Christ said about the trials that his disciples would face and by extension, the trials we will face. It's in Matthew chapter 10. He's just told his, his 12 that, hey, guess what? You are the ones I'm sending out. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, it says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, 
And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And skip down to verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not fear those who will persecute you. Church, we should not fear our government. We should not fear those who hate Christians. We should not fear foreign uh, countries. We should not fear any of that. The only thing that we should fear is have a holy fear for God Himself. A holy fear that should cause us to fall to our knees and say, God, what would you have me to do? Because I'm ready. God has commanded us to follow Him, to go out into His fields for the harvest that He has prepared, and nothing, no government, no rules, no, no churches, no denominations, no people who hate Christians, no family, no friends, nothing should stop us from that mission, including ourselves. And a time is coming, I'm convinced, when it will no longer be safe to be a Christian here in the United States of America. I mean, how much worse has it gotten in the last eight or nine years to be a Christian in this country? What does it say in Matthew 10, verses 32 through 33? It says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Those are sobering words. I don't say this to try and and scare you. This is the reality of where we are. We are becoming more and more hated in the United States of America as Christians. That's the reality of where we are. It's time for harvest. Now's the time. We don't have time to wait anymore. Time's out. I want to leave you with a story before we close this morning. I I want to tell it to you because it illustrates the urgency of of sharing the gospel whenever the opportunity it presents itself and to not be afraid. Most of you, uh, actually there's, there's some that are younger and probably don't remember this. Most of you will remember the dark, dark day of April 20th, 1999. On that day, two young high school students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, would murder 12 students and one teacher at Columbine High School, shooting guns and setting off pipe bombs. 21 others were injured by gunshots, and three others were injured trying to escape the massacre. I remember being a a young 13-year-old 7th grader at Trinity Christian School in Rock Hill, South Carolina. We were just a small school. We had kindergarten through 12th grade, and there were only 300 students. We were small, small. You think Monroe County small? No, <laughs> our school was small. 
And while it was scary, our little school thought nothing like that would ever happen here. Two weeks after Columbine, I'm sitting at a, at a lunch table in our gymnasium, and I was at the, the corner of one table. Across from me was a girl named Sierra, and at the end of a table was a boy named Alan. Alan, he was, a, uh, he was an odd kid. He was, he was strange. Uh, nobody really liked him. He was, he was what we would call a loner, um, but he was a class clown. Uh, he was also a bully. And I didn't know it at the time, but as an adult, I realized that Alan was seeking out attention. He wanted to be loved. He was crying out for help. But that day at the lunch table, Alan made an announcement. He looked at us and said, I'm going to shoot up this school. And then he looked at Sierra and he looked at me and he said, I'm going to start with you and I'm going to start with you. Two hours later, I find myself in the principal's office talking to a detective from the Rock Hill Police Department about what Alan had said. Alan never came back to school after that. I remember somehow word got to the, the school about supposedly a, a day and time that Alan had picked to carry out his threat. And I remember our teacher, uh, you know, this is well before they had active shooter training. Nobody ever even thought about stuff like that. Our teacher started telling us what we would need to do if Alan happened to show up that day. You're going to go here. We're going to put the desk here. I'm going to go here. We're going to have the windows shuttered, the doors locked. Thankfully, Alan never showed up. Fast forward two years. I see Alan for the first time since that day at the lunch table. He asked me if I was still into all the church stuff that I, that I was doing when I was a kid. I told him I was. He kind of scoffed at me. And he proceeded to tell me that he was not into that church stuff. And then he said some chilling words that I'll never forget. I'm going to hell soon, and I'm ready for the party. I'm going to hell soon, and I'm ready for the party. I, I didn't say anything to him. I got away from him as quickly as I could, because I was scared of him. This kid two years earlier threatened to kill me. I was scared of him. A few weeks later, I was at basketball practice at our school, and one of our teachers came into the gym, and he pulled me and one of my classmates aside and said, do you guys remember Alan? Yeah, how could I forget Alan? Yeah, we, re we remember Alan. He told us that Alan committed suicide earlier that day. He shot himself. He was dead. I'm almost certain that Alan is suffering eternal torment in hell today. And I cannot help but wonder if there is anything that I could have said or could have done in that short year that I knew Alan, that would have made any difference at all. But I know one thing, I didn't do it, I didn't try. It's something that haunts me in the back of my mind. We never know how much time someone has on this earth. We never know who is part of the harvest. We should not be afraid. We've got to be bold in our faith. We've got to proclaim the gospel. This is not just something we can sit out because somebody else will take care of it. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few.
Church, we need to go out with the authority of Christ. We need to show the affection of Jesus Christ. And most importantly, we need to fulfill the assignment that Jesus Christ has given us to do. If everyone would just bow their head and close their eyes for a moment. I just want to ask a, a couple of questions. There's nobody, there's nobody looking around. The first question is this. If you would say today, David, I'm not part of God's kingdom. I'm like Alan. I'm lost. But I don't want to be anymore. I'm ready to accept Christ as my Savior. If you want to do that today, would you just slip up your hand? The next question is this. This is for the rest of us who profess that we are saved. I have a question for you today. If you would say today, David, I admit that I have not been out gathering the harvest. I've been sitting on the sidelines. Maybe you've been scared. Maybe you feel like you're not able to. Maybe it's something else. But if you want to say today, I want to make a commitment today that I'm going to do everything I can to go out into the field because I know the laborers are few and I want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you raise your hand this morning? Thank you. There's hands all over the room. You can put those down. Church, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to have a closing song. We have places designated up here at the altar or you can pray at your seat. But church, God is on the move here at Bethlehem. And it's time we get on board and move with Him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for this day, Lord. And God, we just pray that You uh, will continue to touch our hearts, Lord, and make it soft towards the message of the gospel, that we will carry that message out. Help us to be bold as lions and to go out proclaiming Your good news. Because after what You did for us, it is the least we can do. Be with us as we go out this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.